Section 18 of Here and Hereafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Campbell Shelp. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. The Unseen Power. Winter walked restlessly about the room as he told his story. He was a slender young man with very smooth hair worn rather too long, a gold-mounted pince-nez, and an expression which showed that vanity was not wholly absent from his composition. It was the story of a haunted house. The man who owned it, and was now unable to let it, had asked Winter to investigate. And the whole point of it is that you've got to come along and help me, he concluded. Thank you, said Mr. Arden, but I will not go. Arden was a man of fifty, white-haired, thin, heavily lined. Well, why not? said Winter peevishly. I want to know why not. It seems to me it would be rather interesting. You can choose any night you like, and... Arden waved the subject away with one hand. It's useless to talk about it, he said. I'm not going. But what do you mean, said Winter? You are not going to tell me that you're superstitious or afraid. I should say, said Arden, that I am what you would call superstitious. You, I presume, are not. Emphatically not, said Winter. Nor afraid. Nor afraid, Winter echoed. Then why don't you go alone, said Arden. Winter murmured of sociability. It was no great fun to sit up all night by oneself. Besides, in the detection of a practical joke, which was probably all that it was, two would be better than one. Arden must see for himself that... Arden broke in impetuously. Look here, he said. Stop wandering about the room and sit down. I'll tell you why I won't come. Did you ever hear of Minerton Priory? Of course I've heard about it. I don't know the whole story, and I don't suppose anybody does. A man lost his life over it, didn't he? Two men lost their lives. I was the third man. Now you know why I won't play with these things any more. Tell me about it, said Winter. I've only heard scraps here and there, and reports are always inaccurate. So you were actually one of them. I should never have guessed it. I will tell you the story if you wish. Will you have it now, or will you wait till you have finished your investigation of the house at Falmouth? I will hear it now, said Winter. This is the story that Arden told. In 1871, my aunt, Lady Wytham, bought Minerton Priory. The place had been uninhabited for the best part of half a century and was in very bad repair. It was cheap and it was picturesque, and both cheapness and picturesqueness appealed to Lady Wytham. Of the original priory there was very little left standing. Frequent additions had been made to it at different periods, and the general effect of the place when I first saw it was rather grim and queer. Lady Wytham was very energetic, had the place surveyed, and in a few months had got her workmen down there. 
In one wing of the house a secret chamber had been found. It was on the ground floor, and it was a small room of perhaps twelve feet square. There was one window to it, placed very high up, and this window had been built up on the outside. Opposite to the window was a small fireplace, and the only entrance to the room was from the big dining hall. The hall was paneled, and one of the panels formed the door into the secret chamber. I believe this kind of thing is fairly common in old houses dating back to the times of religious and political trouble, when hiding places were constantly wanted. The builders had not been at work many months at the Priory before there was trouble. I cannot say exactly what it was. It began with the unbricking of the little window in the secret chamber. I know that the men refused point-blank to do any work whatever in the great dining hall. Many were dismissed and new hands were taken on, but the trouble still persisted, till finally Lady Wytham herself went down to interview the clerk of works and a foreman or two. On the following day she wrote to me. She said that an idiotic story was being told with reference to the newly discovered chamber of Minerton Priory, and she was anxious to have it satisfactorily knocked on the head. Would I, and any friends that I might care to bring down, spend a few nights in the secret chamber? It would probably be very uncomfortable, but she would send over furniture and a servant to wait on us. The postscript explained that the servant would not sleep in the house. The idea rather appealed to me, but being, unlike yourself, a little nervous over the business, I determined to take a couple of men down with me. One of them was an intimate friend of mine, Charles Stavold, a good-natured giant, but a useful man in a row. He and I talked it over together, and finally selected as the third man a young Dr. Bernard Ash. Ash was a remarkably brilliant young man, and we looked to him to supply the brains of the trio. If any practical joke were attempted, he would be quite certain to find it out and both Stavold and myself were quite sure that some practical joke would be attempted. Minerton Priory lies in a very conservative county. The rustics of the village were quite capable of resenting Lady Wytham's intrusion into the Priory. It had always been uninhabited in their father's time, and that would be quite reason enough to determine them that it should not be inhabited now. There were some objections to our choice. Ash led an extremely dissipated life, and Stavold and myself were a little inclined to doubt his nerves. This doubt, by the way, was not justified by results. We reached Minerton in the afternoon. A large staff of men was busy at work at the place, but the only person in or anywhere near the great dining hall was Lady Wytham's servant, Rudd. She could not have sent us a better man. He could turn his hand to anything. He had already unpacked the beds and other furniture that had been sent and put them in place, and was at present engaged on getting dinner for us. We went through the dining hall and into the secret chamber. "'This won't do,' said Ash at once. "'What don't do?' asked Stavold. "'Why, there's no furniture in here of any kind. One can't sleep on those stone flags.' "'Are we going to sleep in here?' I asked. "'One of us is.' he said. I called up Rudd and gave my directions. He brought mattresses and made up a bed on the floor. Then we went round and examined the walls carefully, for, as Ash observed, where there is one trick panel there may be another. 
but we could find nothing that seemed in any way suspicious. We came back into the great hall and sat down there and talked the thing over. It was now growing dusk. Already the tapping and hammering of the workmen had ceased, and we had heard them laughing as they passed the window on their way home. Right away at the other end of the hall came the chink of plates and the hiss of a frying pan where Rudd was busy with his preparations. He had brought four big lamps with him, and these he now lit, but there seemed to be something impenetrable about the darkness of this vast room. The light was still dim, with masses of dark shadow waving in the far corners and in the vaulted roof above us. "'Who's going to sleep in the haunted chamber?' Davold asked. "'I am,' said Ash. We squabbled about it, and finally decided to toss for it. Ash had his own way. He was to sleep there that night, Stavold was to sleep there the second night, and I myself was left the third night. By this time we had little doubt that we should be at the bottom of the mystery. Rudd gave us an excellent dinner, and had shown wisdom in his choice of the wine which he had brought with him. The wine made glad the heart of man, and before dinner was over we were treating the whole thing more as an amusing kind of spree than as a serious investigation. At ten o'clock Rudd inquired at what hour we should like breakfast in the morning, and asked if there was anything further he could do for us that night. "'Aren't you going to stop and see the ghost, Rudd?' I asked. "'I think not, sir,' he said quietly. "'Her ladyship had arranged, sir, that I should sleep at the inn.' So we let him go, and I had a curious feeling that with him went the most competent man of the four. Perhaps the same idea had occurred to Ash. "'He's a perfect wonder,' said Ash. "'Fancy being able to turn out a dinner like that here, with no proper appliances of any kind. I don't call it cooking. I call it conjuring tricks.' "'Perhaps you'll see some more conjuring tricks a little later,' said Stavold grimly. After dinner, we played poker for an hour or so, and then turned in. One of the lamps was left burning in the big hall, and Ash took a candle with him into the secret chamber. But he did not propose to leave it lighted. It wouldn't be playing the game, he said. Sometime after I had got into bed, I could hear Ash tapping on the panels and trying them again, and I could see the light under the door. Stavold was already heavily sleeping. I knew nothing more till I was awakened by him early on the following morning. Rudd had already returned and was preparing breakfast. Naturally, our first move was to the secret chamber. We opened the panel door and went in. Ash's clothes were lying on the only chair in the room. The bed had been slept in, but there was no one there now. I noticed that the two candlesticks had also vanished. For a moment or two, neither of us spoke, and then I asked my companion what he made of it. "'That's all right,' he said. "'Ash woke early and has slipped down to the river in his pajamas to get a swim. It's ten to one we find him there.' It was not impossible, but I was surprised that he had not awakened either of us in passing through the hall. We picked up our towels and went down to the river. We called and got no answer, but we had not at this time begun to be anxious. Possibly after his bath he had gone off for a stroll through the plantations. We took a long swim, lit our pipes, and walked up to the house. The workmen were busy now on the new part far away from the big hall. 
In the hall itself, we found breakfast laid for three. Dr. Ash has come back then, I said to Red. Red looked puzzled. I have not seen him this morning, sir. Drowned himself, I suggested to Stavold. Not a bit of it. Why should he? This is a little practical joke of Ash's. We'll see if he doesn't get tired of it before we do. Hunger will bring him back at lunchtime. Late in the afternoon, he had not returned, and we sent word up to the police station. The police station sent us the usual idiot, who made his notes and did his best to look as if he knew what to do. We spent the rest of the day in searching for Ash with no success. At ten o'clock, we gave it up, and Rudd went back to the inn. We did very little talking, and I had some curious and inexplicable feelings as I sat there in the silence. My tobacco pouch lay on the table at arm's length, and I found myself thinking that I might have an impulse to take it up in my hand, but that as I did not want the pouch at the moment, I should resist the impulse. Then my hand shot right out to the pouch, gripped it, and shook it. What the devil are you doing? said Stavold. I flung the pouch down and got up from my chair. Dropping off to sleep, I fancy, I said. You didn't look it. Well, I ought to know, oughtn't I? Help me to drag another bed into that chamber there. We'll see it through together tonight. Oh, no, we won't, said my companion. If we did that, we should leave this hall here for the yeast of the practical jokers, if there are any. You will sleep here tonight. I shall take my turn in the secret chamber. Only, if I can help it, I shan't sleep. I wonder where on earth Ash is, I said. We don't know, and it won't improve our nerves to imagine. Yours seem a bit jumpy anyhow. We've done all we can to find him. Leave it at that. I did not expect to sleep that night, yet sleep came to me in fits. I had wakened many times, and at last I determined that I might as well get up. In half an hour the grey dawn would be beginning. I remembered that Stavold had told me that he did not mean to go to sleep. I whistled softly as I slipped on my clothes, so that he might hear that I was moving about and join me. As he did not come, I listened at the door of the chamber and heard no sound. In a moment, I was standing inside it with the lamp shaking in my hand. The room was exactly as we had found it the morning before. There was nobody there. The bed had been slept in and was now empty. The clothes lay on the chair. The candlestick had gone. I was horribly frightened. I did not wait for Rudd to come back. I went on to the village police station at once and told my story. There was no doubt that this was a serious matter, and before breakfast time an inspector had arrived from Saltam. Accompanied by a sergeant and myself, he came over to the priory and into the dining hall. I think I'll take a look round by myself first, he said. You can wait here. He went into the chamber and I could hear his heavy boots on the flags and the useless tapping on the walls. I was confident that nothing could be found there. There were a few minutes of silence, and he opened the door and said, Will you come in here, Mr. Arden? I went in and saw that the bed had been pulled out from its usual place in the corner. He pointed to a large flagstone which the bed had covered. I should like to show you, sir, a curious optical effect there is in this room. Would you mind standing on that flagstone there? I came round the bed to it, and my foot had just touched it when I was jerked backwards and fell to the floor. Beg your pardon, sir, said the inspector behind me. 
I had to satisfy myself that you didn't know of the trap. See here. He knelt down beside the big flagstone and touched it lightly with his fingers. It was exactly balanced by a big iron pin to the center, and it now swung open, showing a dark shaft going far down into the earth. You mean that they are down there, I said. Not a doubt. Each of them, as is only natural, tried the floor as well as the walls, and moved the bed for the purpose. That finished them. It's the merest chance that I didn't go down the shaft myself. Well, I said, the sooner we go down there the better. Where can we get a rope? The inspector picked up a small tin matchbox and emptied out the matches into the palm of his hand. Listen, he said. He flung the box down the shaft. We listened and listened, but heard no sound. See, he said, that's deep. No use to get a rope there. Anyone who fell down there is dead. That's been a well, I should say. I was angry with the man's cocksurety and said that I was going down in any case. A rope was brought and attached to a lighted lantern. The lantern was lowered and in a few yards went out. The experiment was tried again and again, and each time the lantern was extinguished by the foul air. It was hopeless. No human being could have lived for five minutes down there. I rose from the floor, put on my coat, and turned to the inspector. This explains nothing, I said. On the morning that Dr. Ash was missed, I went in here with Mr. Stavold, and we found the bed placed as it had been the night before, immediately over this trap. If Dr. Ash fell down it, how did he put the bed back after him? The same thing applies to Mr. Stavold. Again, the bed was left over the trap. They did not move the bed back again, but somebody else did. Who? That is what I hope to find out tonight. Are you yourself willing to sleep tonight in the big hall alone? Certainly I don't exactly see what the idea is. Never mind about that. It may come to nothing. One can but try. You say that Rudd locked the door to this hall when he went out at night? Yes, a modern lock had been fitted, and the door locked itself as soon as it was shut. It could only be opened from the outside with a latch key. And no one but yourself that you know of had a key? No one that I know of. Very well, I have a few things to see after. I must speak to this man, Rudd. I shall see you again before nightfall. I spent a horribly long day. I had to telegraph to the relatives of my two friends. I sent Rudd for books and tried in vain to read. Rudd was aware that the police had a suspicious eye upon him and was in a state of suppressed fury. While Rudd was away, I again examined the inner chamber. The window was too high up to be reached by anyone within the room and too closely barred to admit of anyone passing through it. The chimney was equally impassable. No vestige of hope was left to me. At ten o'clock, the inspector came in and told me that he had given up for the night. He looked thoughtfully towards the whiskey decanter. I gave him a drink and mixed one for myself. Then he said good night and went off. I had not expected to sleep, but an insurmountable drowsiness came over me. I flung myself down on the bed as I was, without undressing, hoping that in this way I should wake again in an hour or so. When I woke, the room was brightly lighted. The inspector, two of his men, and Rudd himself were all there. I was startled. What's the matter? What's up? I said. Nothing much, said the inspector, but I know who put the bed back in its place. Who was it? It was yourself, sir. You did it in your sleep. It had occurred to me that this was just possible. 
and I had a man watching through the window of the room. It is impossible, I said. I should know something of it. I am sure I have been here ever since you left me. Your man must have made a mistake. My man made no mistake, said the inspector dryly, for my man happened to be myself. You came in, set the lamp down, pushed the bed over to one corner, and then went to the chair where you seemed to be folding up imaginary clothes. The bodies were recovered two days later, and the whole story, of course, got into the papers. I was away from England for some years after that. It was one of the things that one wishes to forget. You ask me to take part in another of these investigations. In all probability, there is nothing to investigate but a practical joke or a chance noise or something equally explicable. But you will understand that I will not take the risk that there may be something else. But, my dear Arden, said Winter, balancing the pince-nez in his hand, there is nothing whatever in this story that you have told me. What could be more natural than that your two friends should examine the floor, should do so with too little care, and should reap the consequences? The repeated dream is itself quite natural. I should imagine there are a few people who have not had it. At the most, it is a coincidence that the dream, accompanied by somnambulism, should have come three nights in succession, but there is nothing supernatural there. Never mind that word supernatural. Do you think there is anything inexplicable? You are forgetting that the bed in that chamber had been slept in both nights. The sleeper had been awakened by some sound. What was it? What drew him to the trapdoor? What was it that took possession of my will and my body so that my own personality was as blotted out as if I had been dead? But, he added impatiently, I do not want to convince you. When you are brought in touch, as I have been, with the unseen power, you will be convinced. As your friend, I hope you never will be. End of section 18. Recording by Campbell Shelp.